right, good, good to be with you all again tonight. Welcome back, or welcome for the first time. Um, if, I, if I could give probably one talk for my whole life, I think this would probably be it. So I'm very, very grateful to be with you and to just have this moment with you all. Um, what we're going to do is, as, as some of you have picked up, some of you have seen it, maybe some of you are, again, haven't, haven't necessarily been around, so it's like a, you're taking it in for the first time. We are, there's seven of us traveling here, right? Myself, two other guys wearing the ninja robes, um, and then the, uh, the four guys who are kind of like a little bit confusing, like the like kind of hippie Mormon thing. Um, that's <coughs> what it looks like. Um, so uh, it was, they're called postulants, so they're the new guys. So they joined us September 8th. They've been with us for six months. To get to that point, like a lot has to happen, so they've been journeying with us for a number of years. But uh, what I'm going to start with is kind of telling the story, uh, just an experience when I was a postulant. <clears throat> so I was a postulant in, in 2009, so it's been a minute. Um, <clears throat> but I can still beat all of them at basketball, as we saw today. Um, we played at the, the UREC today. Um, that, wasn't, that wasn't very nice. I apologize. Um, but uh, it's funny, right? Because when you become a Franciscan, you move across the, the country. Like we, we try and be pretty intense, and we try and get after it. And so there's certainly a lot of difficulties, like moving, you know, moving to New York and starting to kind of like sleep on a mat on the ground and just not doing all the things you want to do and not eating the foods you want to do, eat and like being amongst, amongst the poor, being in the city. It's just all that. There's like a lot going on. Um, and so what's funny is actually for me, like without a doubt, the hardest part of postulancy, the hardest part of me actually like being in the friary, without a doubt, 100%, it was the first time I had to sing in public. Um, which, for some of you who have been here for Mass and you're like, like, why doesn't he sing anything? Well, there's a reason I, I don't sing anything. Uh, <clears throat> I'm trash at singing uh, to this day. Um, but I entered, <clears throat> I entered when I was 24. And I didn't really grow up listening to music. I definitely didn't, didn't grow up singing. So it was like not even, not karaoke, like nothing. I don't sing by myself because it's, it's like, I can't do it even by myself. Um, <laughs> I remember being there for a couple of months. And it was like my first time to lead something. And so there's like, okay, you know, it's whatever. It's this evening prayer, Sunday night thing. You got to sing this. And I'm like, do I really have to sing it? And it was Father Gabriel, the priest, is like, yep, you got to sing it. It's like, okay, I tried. Um, and, and I just remember before it happening, uh, just like all of, it still happens to this day too, which is embarrassing, but it's just, it is what it is. Uh, all of like the panic and all of the like restricted breathing, shortness of breath, um, the nervousness, all that sort of stuff, <clears throat> which is not very helpful for singing. And so I remember, so I like tried to throw out a few words. I probably threw like a little extra breath in there. I don't know if you could totally call it singing, but I, I, gave, I gave it a shot. And what was so fascinating to me is that after this disaster, this, this public humiliation, nobody cared. Nobody cared. <clears throat> and just, I've been kind of processing that, like, a lot. Like, like what was going on there? Because, right, so here I, here I, basically here I am, 
in this group, I had we had nine postulants. I'm with my, my brothers. I'm with all of these other friars, like all of these guys who like, I really respect and I really admire. And I really want to, like in front of them, like put my best foot forward, right? And I was like, and I, and it seemed like maybe, like just for the first time in my life, in, in front of people who I respected and whose admiration I wanted, I had to do something I was bad at. And because what I realized is like, really, if you pay attention, like for, for the first 24 years of my life, like I just didn't put myself in those situations. I put myself in situations where I was good at stuff. I was good at sports, so I played sports. I was bad at singing, so I didn't join the choir. And just, I realized like how much control we have in our life. And so for the, like, I just realized that really my entire life, I just never had to be like poor, weak, vulnerable, incapable in front of people, especially people who I respected and I admired. And here's this thing, right? This is just kind of a first kind of commentary on the nature of love. Like, there is, there is a, a love, and there is something when it's like, someone sees me and celebrates me when I'm good at something. That's good. That's just. There's 100% a place for that. There's no problem with that. Um, but if we only live there, and we hide there, we never get to experience this deeper love. Uh, there's a love when we are loved and received in our poverty, in our weakness, in ability, in our inability. This is the love that we call mercy. And we're all made to experience this kind of love, the love of mercy. And so again, like the, 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 the reflection on this over the years has continued. And it's like, okay, I realized I'd never really put myself in a situation where I had to be bad at something in front of people I cared about. What was up with that? Like, where did that whole idea come from? Where did that whole pattern of behavior come from? And I think it goes back, and I've just reflected, like, just to this experience when I was, whatever, 16, so I guess probably sophomore. No, it would have been, yes, my first semester of junior year of, of high school. Um... And uh, basically my whole life, I kind of, for good reasons, for negative reasons, just tried to basically like do everything well. And so I, I really just give a lot of effort to it and I had a lot of resources and a really great <clears throat> family supporting me. And so I like, you know, I was good at sports and I kind of made the all-star teams and I was good at school and I made the honor roll. And I just like, I just kind of had this pattern of life of you're gonna do it, like do it as well as possible. And so when it's, it's again, it's, 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 I guess it's probably the same, sophomore year of high school, it would have been the second semester of sophomore year of high school, so scratch that. Um, I was signed up for something like five honors classes, <clears throat> and just like, just kind of going for it, and I realized like, by the age of 16, I got burnt out. I just got burnt out. I was like done. I couldn't do it anymore. And so within a semester, like overnight, my GPA went from a 4.2 to a 3.2. Um, also, so um, there's a morning where I'm driving to school, drove a, drove a, a green minivan for a while. Um, I drove to school and I, there's like a little bit of a speed trap and I got caught going 63 and a 45 at like whatever it was, it was like 6.30 in the morning. So I got my first ticket. I got my first ticket. And so it's the day I have my first ticket 
I, finally, I get home after school, and my mom's in her little office typing away, and, and I come in, and it's like, so mom, um, just so you know, like I got, a, I got a ticket today. And she pulls up from her desk, just this, this first report card, where this big drop happened. It had just come in that day. And her response was, oh great, because look at this too. I came <clears throat> looking for mercy, and I received the opposite. And it is, you know, people have reactions they have. It's like, it doesn't define a relationship by any stretch. Um, but this thing happened at that moment. Because really, I'd been living my whole life, my first 16 years of my life, with this hypothesis that I had to be perfect. And I had this first opportunity to experience I didn't have to be perfect. But instead of that, I received confirmation of this lie I'd been living with uh, my whole life. And so I said, okay. Uh, failure, imperfections, like not an option. And it set me off on this whole pattern of behavior of two things. <clears throat> seeking perfectionism, seeking perfection, and hiding imperfection. So there's just this, this kind of, I'm going to achieve this mentality, and, and all, see, like, I'm not going to be perfect. I can't do it. And so what that means is there's, there's going to be things in my life that I'm going to have to hide. And so this is how I live the next many years of my life, and in some ways I'm, I'm sure I'm still healing from it. And the problem with this is this, like there's a number of problems with it, but one of it is this, is like, <clears throat> like in seeking perfectionism, again, like you're not going to experience mercy. And in a life of hiding, you're not going to experience intimacy. You're not really going to be seen if you're hiding from friends, from family, from the Lord. And so my, the lie I had believed set me off on a pattern of behavior which prevented me from receiving and experiencing the greatest gifts that I needed to receive and to experience. That I was seen, known, loved in all of me. And that there is a merciful love. There's a merciful love um, for me. There's a, a priest who I love who's awesome. His name's Father Jacques Philippe. He's very well known. And he has this quote. He says that modern man is condemned to his successes because he has nowhere to take his failures. Modern man is <clears throat> condemned. Excuse me. Modern, <clears throat> modern man is condemned to his, his successes because he has nowhere to take his failures. And you see that all over the place. You see that all over the place. In so many uh, sports, clubs, school, all sorts of things, work, whatever it is, it's like um, we celebrate, we receive, we accept success. Uh, we reject, we condemn, we punish weakness. But for the Christian, that's not true. For you and I, that's not true. We have a place to take our weakness. We have a place to take our weakness. Um, 
In fact, we have a God who perhaps more than everything wants to see us and to love us in our, in our failures and our weaknesses. <clears throat> We're going to share a gospel story that you're all familiar with. Um, it's the story right of the prodigal son. And so we all know the story, right? There's these two sons. One of the sons decides that he's going to go do his own thing. And so he asks his father for his inheritance. He, he cuts himself off from the family. He goes off to a distant land, squanders it all on loose living. <clears throat> and as time goes on, he ends up with nothing. And he ends up, right, eating what the pigs eat. And he has this moment of revelation of basically like, this, this ain't it. Okay, my dad, my dad's got servants. Uh, I can work. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to return to my father and to be a servant. It's better to be a servant in my father's house than to be, you know, eaten with the pigs. And so he starts to return home. And when he first reaches the horizon, what happens? As he first reaches the horizon, the father sees him. His father had never stopped waiting, never stopped looking, never stopped longing for that moment when his son would return. And what does the father do? The boss, the man of the house, um, the one with all of these people under his care, like what does he do? He sprints. He runs to his son. And the Gospels tell us he runs to his son and he embraces him. And as the son starts to say, like, Father, like, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm just happy to be your servant. Like, the father interrupts him. The father interrupts him. He has no time for that. And he puts on the robe and he puts on the sandals and he puts on the ring and he says, Let's, we're going to have a party. We're going to kill the fatted calf because my son who is dead is alive. And the father brings him home and puts him right back where he was before he left. We have a father who loves us like this. At this so the, <clears throat> the slightest hint of our return, he runs pursuing us to embrace us. <clears throat> now, there may be no gospel passage which moves my heart more than this, um, and I'm pretty deeply invested in it, uh, just in particular because this is how he has and continues to love me. And I wrestle with, I wrestle with a lot of the art depicting uh, this moment. 
and here's the deal, like artists are artists, I'm not an artist, um, and I realized the, the point of art is not to like have like a snapshot, like there's other things that are going on. Um, I'm not an artist, but I am a priest. And in my own way, I am a father. And so this depiction often of um, the son kneeling, the father stoically, just in front of the house, saying, welcome home. It, it, ju it just doesn't do it for me. Um, it's, it's the stoicism. It's the indifference. Because in the heart of God, for me, in the heart of God for you, there is no indifference. <clears throat> and there is no stoicism. There is passion. There is desire. There is pursuit. There is longing. Reality is not indifferent or stoic before you. But rather, God is passionate, invested, given, longing for you. And what does the gospel say? Like The gospel says that the father ran to him at a distance. Maybe it was a quarter mile, maybe it's a half mile. By the time the father gets there, he's losing, he's losing his robe, he's losing his sandals, he's sweating, maybe he's got bloody feet. He's crying. And when he meets his son, he doesn't just stoically pat him on the back, he falls on his knees to receive his son. so undignified, but so passionate. This is the heart of God for our weakness. This is the heart of God for our sinfulness. This is the heart of God for each and every one of us. <clears throat> I'm going to share now a, um, a story of a real father and a real son. And I heard this story from, uh, it's the, the, the story is about Josie and Papa. I heard this story from uh, one of Papa's do uh, granddaughters. And this is the story. Papa, uh, Mr. Vander Woody called Papa, he had five boys. And, uh, and Papa was a big sports guy, athletic director, um, was up running four to six miles every day. He had five boys that lived on a farm. Papa was a good man, a good dad, a good Catholic. Uh, he loved the Lord. And so he loved all of his sons. But if you ask any member of the family, there was one son who had a special place in his heart. And that was his son, Joseph, 
who they called Josie. And Josie was born with Down syndrome. And one, like, one kind of natural sort of result of having Down syndrome is certain sort of processes take some more time. And that there's a, there's a physical component which kind of helps with uh, sort of the whole maturation. And so Josie spent a lot more time crawling than it would be normal um, or what that would have happened with the other brothers. And so what Papa did, so that he can crawl with him as long as possible, he had these special like pads made for his, 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 uh, his elbows and his knees and his shins so that he can spend all the time in the world just crawling with Josie. And all he wanted to do was be with Josie. And so, again, Josie wasn't particularly helpful on the farm, but whenever he was out there doing stuff, Josie would be out there with him. One day, at this point, Josie was about 20 years old. They were out in the back taking down the pool. They have one of these above-ground pools. And Joseph, Josie, as he does, was out there just helping Papa. And so they were over in an area uh, like they don't usually go. And as Josie was walking, he walked above the crates, sort of the gate of the, the cistern for the farm where all of the sewage would go. And as he walked over, the covering, it cracked and broke, and Josie fell in. And so hearing this, um, Papa immediately runs to him. He cries out for his wife. And he runs to him. And without hesitation, he jumps in the cistern. And he works himself down so that he's below Josie. And his wife runs out is able up top trying to help get Josie out, but he's too heavy. And so to get Josie higher, Papa had to keep going lower. Eventually, they were able to get Josie out, but it would be too late for Papa. He would end up drowning. The wake for Papa would have a line of visitors for some 10 hours. And one of the things Papa would do is uh, twice a week, he would take a a slot at the Perpetual Adoration Chapel from 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning. It was the hardest slot, so he would take it. The chapel would have a big plaque put in front of it with Papa and Josie, and it would be renamed the Thomas Vanderwoody Adoration Chapel. And his other sons, one of whom's a priest, took those shifts, and in honor of their father, they now take those adoration shifts. 
Josie, Josie's never going to be a priest. Josie's never going to get married, have a family. He's never going to cure cancer, solve some great problem, have a job. So why did Papa die to save Josie? It's just what good fathers do. It's just what good fathers do. Would he do it again? Absolutely. And what does he expect of Josie? Does he expect him to do some great thing? No. What does he expect him to do? To live, to love, to laugh, to receive the gift. To just receive the gift. My brothers and sisters, this love is not just for Josie. It's not just true for him. It's for us and true for all of us. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And what does he say? Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We know who the Father is because of the Son. In the fullness of time, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the fullness of time, the Word became flesh and crawled among us. And Jesus loved us and died for us in an even less dignified way. As God would enter into the sewage, enter into the deepest and the darkest of all <clears throat> of history and all of humanity, taking upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the ugly, all of the guilt. He took it all upon himself and died for us. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous, but the sinner. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. The pursuit of the father for the son in the parable of the prodigal son is a historical event and reality the life death resurrection of jesus who sees us and left his home to pursue us to give everything for us 
for our perfection? No. Because we need him? Yes. And because he desires to be with us forever. As a Franciscan, as a father, um, someone who cares, there are a lot of things that break my heart. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of situations. There's probably two which do it to me the worst. The first is those who don't think there's any place to take their weakness. Who live that life of perfectionism or hiding. And who because they, they just don't know that mercy is here. And they don't get to be loved there. And the second are those who think that the world, the Lord, the church, their priests are indifferent towards them. There is no indifference in the heart of God for you. There is no indifference in the heart of the church towards you. There is no indifference in the heart of your pastors in my own heart for you. There is desire, there is longing. And so to kind of bring it in for a close, um, as the the father's pursuit of the son is a historical reality, the father's embrace of the son is a sacramental, ongoing reality. We experience nothing less when we return and experience the sacrament of reconciliation. As the priest there in persona Christi receives us and sees us and loves us and offers us uh, the mercy of Jesus. And we don't spend those hours in the box for your uh, stray days, but for all the other stuff. And so I'm just going to share this last word I'm going to share it speaking personally, but I realize it also is um, representative of my brother priests. Because what's your experience of coming here tonight? You remember, okay, you got the flyer, you think about it, uh, you adjust your schedule, maybe you get in the car, maybe you walk, and you like make this 10, 15, 20, 30 minute trip here. So you come and you pursue this place. Or what's your experience when you so often go to confession, right? All right, I gotta go to confession, I'm gonna get in my car, I'm gonna check the times, whatever, I'm gonna drive down, I'm gonna walk there 15, 20, 30 minutes, I get there, I'm gonna wait for 10 or 15 minutes, 
Okay, now Father's ready. I go in there. Cool. It's an experience. Like, I'm pursuing this. It's on me. And it can be this experience of, well, Father's happy to receive me if I come. Father's not really bothered if I don't. And I just want to tell you this. Um, it was when I was 18 years old I felt the desire to be a priest. And the primary desire with it, the desire which burned through every other desire, was to be a priest. And in the sacrament of reconciliation, give you a place to be seen, to be loved, to bring your weakness, and to experience the Father's love for you there. And this is the desire that had me move from California. This is the desire that had me leave the stuff. This is the desire that had me leave uh, the family. This is the desire that had me leave the, the girlfriend. The, the number one desire was to be available to receive you in the name of Jesus and to give you his mercy. And so when you come to my confessional, you might experience, you might think that you've been pursuing this for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I've been pursuing that moment for almost 20 years. Because because I love you. Because he loves you. And because I've received so much mercy. And in the name of Jesus, I have so much mercy to give. There's a place to be weak. There's a place to be seen. There's a place to be received in the totality of who you are. And to experience just this profound and deep truth that the heart of the Father longs, desires you and all of you. We'll have an opportunity in a few minutes for, for confessions. And I invite you to come, you know, and just to, to bring it all. It doesn't seem like we're going to have time for everyone, but there's confessions all the time here. And just when we come, just like, just give it to them. And allow them to see you and to love you there. Thank you for listening. The ministry here at CTK is made possible through our generous donors and golden givers. 
If you would like to learn more or partner with Christ the King on LSU's campus, please visit ctklsu.org.